Hi friends, thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories weekend bonus episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories. Hi friends, thanks so much for listening to ASP Stories. It has been a lot of fun to read these stories to you. You know, this is going to be the last episode of 8241 Family's Life Above the Clouds that we're going to air for some while. We may return to the book later, but we have other authors queued up to read excerpts from their books. And I think it's time that we get a little bit more variety in ASP stories. So I am really looking forward to hearing what the other authors have to share I did take some sneak previews, and we have some really cool stuff headed your way, so uh, looking forward to those episodes soon. Now, today's episode runs a little bit longer than the previous ones, and I'm just warning you in case you have a time window. Uh, It's trying to wrap up the ongoing story about climbing North Maroon, the 14er that I climbed so many years ago. If you did not hear the first part of this segment, that is contained in episode 8. So ASP Stories, episode number 8. You may want to go back and listen to that one before you start this one. And if you put them all together, then you get the full story about climbing North Maroon. And this is a crazy one. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening in. Now on with ASP Stories. Finally, I heard Calvin stir. It was still dark, but the gentle glow of the rising sun would soon highlight the horizon. Calvin did not just happen to wake up at this early hour. He had never slept. Calvin attacks climbs with a passion. This passion will not allow him to sleep. So he lies on the hard ground, and he prays. This night, his prayers were for the father and the children, no doubt. Calvin loves to start early and to start strong. I knew that I had better hurry to swallow a few bites of breakfast and to stuff my day pack with food and gear we would need for up there today. By the time I could choke down a dry bagel, Calvin might already be a quarter mile down the trail. He never urges others to hurry. He just heads off, leaving the tardy to catch up. This morning I ate my bagel as I hiked, gasping for breath between bites. My legs were stiff from the hike the night before, and my breathing reflected the fairly high altitude of our camp. It was a little hard to get my muscles working smoothly again. After some time, we came to a place where a stream crosses the trail. I stopped, and I filled my water bottle. Since I did not have a filter, I used purification tablets to kill the potential of Giardia. These insidious little organisms plant themselves in one's digestive tract and dig in for the long haul. Diarrhea can last for over a year, and the treatment for this pathology requires ingesting a poison that is almost as dangerous as the disease. I shook my water bottle with care to dissolve the iodine tablet. Then I loosened up the cap and squeezed the chemical-laden water through the lid and around the threads of the bottleneck. The thought of swallowing this cocktail did not please me, but on this climb, thirst could kill. Calvin asked me if I worried about drinking the chemicals I had put in the water. I use these pills as infrequently as I can, I replied. He had carried more water into the wilderness than I had. 
Perhaps I should have done likewise. We could not see the sun yet, but as we left the stream, the top of North Maroon burned under soul's pink light. It beckoned to us. The worries of the night dissipate with the coming of the sun. Thinking of the lost family, I hoped that they might be home in bed, or at least that this morning sun would find them alive to warm and encourage them. We continued to keep watch for the father and the two children, but spotting them in this wilderness would be very unlikely. Part of me wanted to abandon our climb and to search for the father and his children, but perhaps they'd already been located. No one could tell us if they'd been found. Additionally, I did not know where to begin to look. Perhaps staying on this trail was as good a searching strategy as any. My muscles finally limbered up, and I felt energized. I have found that my spirit determines the success of my experiences in the wild. There are days that my spirit will not rest, and on those days I fight fears of falling or of the unknown. On those nervous days, I feel off balance. But on days like this one, my spirit is empowered. Confidence for the climb and joy complemented each other. I drew an inner peace and focus from the natural setting around me. This day was to be a good one. I watched the line between the sunshine and the darkness as it traversed down the cliffs of the mountain ahead of us. The light grew in breadth and shifted from pink to gold as it moved steadily down the pyramid-shaped peak. The cold morning air encouraged me to race up the trail higher into this warm light. Soon we came to a field of boulders. Boulder fields are common in Colorado 14ers, but this one is at the base of the mountain rather than closer to the top, where one would normally expect to see such. There's no ground in such boulder fields. These are places where boulders have been piled and piled on top of each other with deep, dark holes between them. These piles have been built by glaciers in some places and by erosion in others. The large rocks range from the size of a football to rocks bigger than a school bus. Here, most of the boulders were smaller than a bed, but they were perched and balanced on top of one another in such a way that there's not a horizontal surface anywhere. Hiking across such terrain requires either crawling or hopping from one sharp rock edge to another. It's not uncommon to step on a boulder that has many times your own mass, yet is balanced so perfectly that it seesaws under your feet. This day I enjoyed bounding from rock to rock. I find the balancing challenge fun. The odd angles of footing threaten one's ankles, but time on such rocks builds much strength and dexterity. Finally, the sunshine greeted us as we approached the first serious upslope. We were still well below the tree line, but the mountain looming above us had no trees. The maroons are so rocky that only the smallest of grasses, mosses, and flowers can find purchase for the roots. I was fascinated by the volume of the rock before me. Guidebooks recommended climbing this mountain in small groups with hard hats and not on a weekend when more people might be on the mountain. Human-triggered rock slides are common on the maroons. The more people climbing above you, the higher the likelihood of catching a rock shower. Our group was fairly small, but I would rather have attempted a climb like this with one climbing partner rather than three. On other climbs, Dan, Brian, and I had climbed a few chimneys, narrow clefts and cliffs that were littered with loose stones. There was one on a rock outcropping in Estes Park that really earned our respect. Dan and I were climbing ahead of Brian this day. We did not have ropes, but the climbing was easy. As Dan and I topped the chimney, a loose, rounded chuck of granite the size and shape of a bowling ball was disturbed. This small boulder had to weigh at least 30 pounds. One does not even need to touch such a stone to release its potential energy. 
Water and ice can wash dirt and smaller rocks out from under these stones until they're anchored only by the slightest of foundations. Simply stepping near the stone will free it to dive down the mountain. Brian was clinging to one side of the chimney, about 40 feet below, when this bowling ball began falling, bouncing from one side of the chimney to the other as it went. It gained such velocity so quickly that it literally crushed smaller pieces of rock as it bounced. There was nowhere for Brian to hide. He could not quickly move without joining the rock in its powerful tumble. He simply pulled himself in close to the cliff and waited for the inevitable. The projectile slammed into the side of the chimney to which Brian clung quite near Brian's face. Little shards of rock peppered him, stinging his cheeks, lips, and forehead. Then the rock ricocheted off the opposing chimney wall directly behind Brian, only to slam into his wall again slightly lower on Brian's other side. The sound it made was enormous. For a moment, Dan and I quit breathing. We did not dare move for fear of triggering another slide. Brian is gentle-natured and brave. He simply looked up at us with his big eyes and proclaimed, Jeez, oh, Pete's! We were lucky that day. On another steep couloir climb, Brian and Dan were above me. As I was scaling a vertical portion of the narrow couloir, they triggered another slide of scores of fist-sized rocks. I found myself only able to shift my upper body from side to side to dodge the larger stones. My head and shoulders were exposed, and I could neither duck nor jump off the face. I screamed up for them to stay still as I contorted my upper body into all sorts of strange positions, attempting to avoid catching a high-speed chunk with my face. We were again blessed that no serious injury occurred. I was peppered with the smaller stones, but I did successfully avoid the more threatening ones. This day on North Maroon was perhaps the most exposure to rock falls that I had ever experienced. There were too many people on the mountain. The cry of rock echoed time and again up and down the steeps. Gravity forces loose rock to lower states of potential energy. In other words, just as water runs through the lowest part of a landscape, the rock tends to settle in the lower portions of a coular. It also settles wherever the terrain is the least steep. On this mountain, the least steep slopes still dive down at an aggressive angle. It goes without saying that humans also tend to appreciate the less steep footing. On this mountain, the combination is hazardous. People follow each other where the rock is piled and loose. I had already learned my lessons about loose rock. I chose to climb on the steeper terrain just off the fall line of the more frequently followed routes. I'd rather challenge myself on the steeps than fall prey to a random stone. Also, as a rule, I would not climb directly under anyone, and if someone were crossing under my fall line, I would pause and wait for them to clear the danger zone before I would take another step. Even with these precautions, I found myself playing dodgeball with large stones that had far too much kinetic energy. I spent my day looking up for the next shower from above. Calvin was also quite cautious. He did not feel as comfortable free climbing the moderate pitches that I was forced onto, so hard hat firmly planted, he followed the fall lines route. Still, he's sure-footed, planting his footfalls several in advance. Chuck and Bob stayed closer to Calvin. I had given Bob my biking helmet to wear for protection. Calvin's hard hat seemed in search of a construction area, and Bob's bike helmet in search of a bike. They looked out of place in this setting, but this headgear was very necessary. I chuckle when I imagine the mountain men who first explored these peaks standing on a ridge watching our entourage.
These brave souls lived in these peaks, dressed in buckskin and wool. They carved their sustenance out of nature's raw bounties. They knew the land as we never may. They understood her ways. I can see a couple of these men with sun-darkened skin and squinted eyes laughing at us. What's that yeller thing on that feller's head? Ain't got no clue, Earl. But that other end has stripes on his'n, and it's strapped down so tight, you could pick him up by it. Looks like a ball of snow with a red skunk stripe to me. Climbers today often wear fluorescent spandex and brightly colored packs and jackets. They look like something from a bad dream out here in nature. There's a reason for this look. If one were to get lost or injured, it helps to be seen easily. Still, I've not adopted this custom. I would rather not clash with the natural beauty around me. If someone comes to the woods to find solitude, even if I'm there, I do not want to interrupt their experience with blinding pink or yellow spandex. I'd rather blend in with the rocks and the trees. I prefer that they never knew of my presence. But what about safety? We are never lost if skilled in nature, even if we don't know where we are. There's no need to find your way home when you're already there. And as far as getting injured goes, take a friend along and hide some fluorescent plastic in your pack. Nature offers unlimited ways for humans to hurt themselves, but nature's not mean-spirited. She intends no malice. It's our ignorance of her ways that costs us so dearly. I don't see the wilderness as a dangerous place to fear or to resist, but rather a medium with which to flow. It's for lack of knowledge that my people perish. So learn from nature and use timeless wisdom. Work with her and you'll discover her treasures. I believe. I believe that adventure sports will improve your health. I believe that adventure sports will improve your outlook on life. I believe that adventure sports will build community, heal families, and inspire children. I believe that adventure sports will improve this planet. And I believe that adventure is fun. Travis and I created the Adventure Sports Podcast because we believe that adventure sports can make a real difference in this world. The Adventure Sports Podcast creates joy, health, purpose, relationships, memories, and second chances. Do you believe? It is our goal in the new year to double the number of listeners to ASP. Why? To double the good the show is doing. We started this show on the last day of February nearly three years ago. So by the last day of February this year, we will be celebrating double the joy, double the health, double the memories, and double the second chances. This is our challenge to you. Do you believe? Join with us. Tell others about the show. Tell them about the 340-plus episodes of stories, examples, and inspiration. Tell them about this resource that is there for them to explore and encounter. Kickstart their adventure. Kickstart a life. Chuck's quick, jerking hiking style made me uncomfortable. It was clear that Bob was not comfortable either. He was the least experienced of our climbing party, and the exposure to rock falls and simply to falling were taking their toll on his psyche. Still, it was a spectacular day. By moving off the beaten path, I increased the technical aspect of my climb, but I also greatly reduced the stress induced by all the loose rock. It was a delight to scale a steady dose of one short pitch after another of vertical rock. I felt confident in my body's ability. The air was cool. It was a pleasure to feel the warm sun on my shoulders and back, with heat radiating off the rock. 
Thin air breezes licked up my sweat. Hands on rock, sun on skin, slight pain from sharp edges, muscles challenged and responding, and above all else, balance. Critical balance. Life or death balance. I was focused, and the cares of life were reduced to the next hand or foothold. This day, I was in my element, and my element made me feel free and accomplished. There are other days when the same climb could have made me feel edgy. I would have been slower and troubled by the exposure. I recognize that there's an inner balance that's not always present. This is not the balance of equilibrium, but rather the balance of the spirit. On the off days, I think of falling. Fear begins to erode confidence, and caution, who is always king, becomes a tyrant. Sometimes I can pause on a tough day and mentally adjust my emotions. I sit on a high rock and enjoy the view and recognize my place in the creation, and it seems to bring proper balance back again. It primes my pump so strength and assuredness can flow. I'm the same person with the same strength and skill, whether it's a balanced day or an off-balanced day. The rock is also the same. The difference is my spirit and my focus. There is a lesson in this that applies to all of life. When we allow the stress of this world to rule our hearts, we do not have abundant life. But if we can stop in the midst of the storm and we can remember who we are and our place in this universe, then we regain perspective. Balance returns when we focus on our life's purpose and the tyrant of fear is taken off the throne. Then we gain boldness and courage to go on ahead to do what needs to be done. The mountains teach this lesson. We move up one rocky cliff after another. As we continued up the mountain, the rock-strewn shelves became increasingly pronounced. We were about two-thirds the way to the summit now. The sneak routes that Calvin, Chuck, and Bob had been using diminished. Everyone was forced to climb short pitches hand over foot. The danger of rockfall became even more intense. The mountain funneled the climbers into a narrow lane, and there were simply too many people up on the mountain. People would gain one shelf just to be confronted by another. Then they would stand and survey it for the right route. One person would be climbing as two or three others yelled out directions. I think there's a good foothold just above your left knee. Hey, watch out for that loose rock to your right. Here, give me your hand. I can pull you up. It was quite clear that most all of these people on the mountain were not technical climbers. There are hordes of individuals who rise to the challenge of summiting 14ers. Most 14ers require long and steep hikes, but no technical skill. North Maroon is different. After climbing dozens of peaks, people find that to conquer all the 14ers, they'll have to make it up a few peaks that are somewhat technical. Perhaps many of these climbers would never have attempted such an exposed climb if they did not have the challenging goal of climbing all the 14ers that drives them on. In a way, that's good. It's important for people to be stretched. Through such stretching, we gain an understanding of our true abilities and of our true limits. Few are truly limited to the degree that they believe that they are. Still, when the hordes of non-technical climbers are concentrated on a semi-technical mountain, tempers start to flare. Those unaccustomed to the dangers allow fear to induce stress. Those that are accustomed to facing the fatigue of a long climb are surprised when the fatigue is accompanied by real danger. It's common in a situation like this for strangers to yell out angry warnings to anyone who exhibits less fear or caution than their own. Hey, we don't want to have to carry any one of you off this SOB. What are you doing? Slow down! Interestingly enough, these are the very people that will most likely get hurt. 
They've allowed their emotions to control their ascent, and this can cause injurious mistakes. It's clear that there are a lot of people on the mountain this day that were not having fun. They were being stretched far beyond their comfort levels. Those who are more skilled and experienced enjoy the challenge and know that some perceived risks are actually quite a lot safer than the more obvious safe routes, but those gripped by fear attempt to ruin the day for everyone around them. Of our small climbing party, Calvin was visibly excited by the challenges, but he was steady as always. Bob was scared, but trying hard to hide it. He continued to work his way up with encouraging words from the rest of us. Chuck had his own share of adrenaline flowing. I think he wanted to come across as seasoned and comfortable, but his jerky movements and dancing eyes gave him away. His excitement was changing his climbing from thoughtful to reactionary. I was still having fun. The views and the call the top of the mountain had on my heart kept me moving on. It would be interesting to hear the others describe my attitude. They might see it differently from the outside looking in, but from the inside, I still felt confident. I recognized the exposure, but put frankly, I was more of a trained technical climber. Technical climbing had long been one of my hobbies. I selfishly wished that some of the angry and fearful climbers were not so close to us. Soon we were confronted with a more challenging wall. It stood high enough to make a fall serious. It was just tall enough to have made the use of a rope comforting. Still, it had obvious handholds and footholds. I climbed to the top and I found heaps of loose stones perched on the sloped shelf. Others were below, so I moved cautiously out of their way and tried to remain still until they were out of the fall zone of the rock. I looked down and saw that people were breaking a key rule of safety. They were climbing the wall together, close enough to each other that from a distance they must resemble a disjointed centipede. Chuck was right behind me, and below him was a middle-aged lady we did not know. Below her were Calvin, Bob, and the lady's husband. As Chuck cleared the top, he sprang forward and dashed a few steps into the loose rock as if trying to escape the exposure behind him. The inevitable happened. Several sharp rocks slid from under Chuck's feet to assault those on the wall below. I yelled, Rock! But those on the wall could only hang on and hope for the best. The lady, who had been just below Chuck, caught the brunt of the slide, and she, like myself, did not have proper head protection. Those below her seemed to escape fairly unscathed, but a sizable stone struck her just above her left ear. She cried out and temporarily lost her balance, but managed to maintain her hold on the cliff. A tirade of angry words were screamed up from her husband below. Chuck looked panic-stricken. Those below could not tell whether it was Chuck or me who triggered the slide, and I did not really want to expose Chuck to the wrath of the strangers below, and he did not confess to the error. I moved as quickly as I could without triggering another slide, and I knelt at the lip of the wall. I reached down to the lady and gripped her wrist, flying trapeze style. It was already covered with blood. As I pulled her off the face, I saw that her ear was cut a third to halfway off at the top, but it was still attached. I sat her on a rock as she sobbed, trying hard not to cry out. She was a brave woman. I did not have an extensive first aid kit with me, but I handed her a clean bandana to use to apply direct pressure to the wound. There was a lot of blood. We inspected the injury and found that only the one cut was present. Soon she was joined by her husband, Calvin and Bob. The husband had settled somewhat, but still clearly showed his anger towards Chuck and me. Again, Chuck did not confess. Again, I did not accuse. 
We simply worked together to do all we could to comfort the wife. I dug some Tylenol out of my pack, which she received gladly. Others climbed past us. Some saw the blood, said, ooh, and kept going. Others offered assistance, but there was little that anyone could do to help. After some time, the wife assured us that she was all right and urged us to climb on. She and her husband stayed behind discussing their options. She was well enough to walk, and I assumed that they would work their way down the peak. You know, we might be smack dab in the middle of winter these days, but spring is really just right around the corner. Make sure you've got one of our lightweight camp stoves ready to go in your pack for when the weather starts turning warmer. Both the 180 stove and the 180 flame are designed to burn the abundant wood fuels you find on the ground instead of requiring you to haul in heavy, messy camp fuels. Take a minute to head on over to our site at www.180tack.com to check out these American-made stoves that are built to last. You'll be helping us, and you'll be helping the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks, guys. It's official. Winter has arrived, and Bentgate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammut, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. There was a knot in the pit of my stomach. I was angry that Chuck had been so careless, and I was angry that he did not confess his error. It seemed he was willing to let me take the rap. Perhaps in his adrenaline-induced state, he did not realize that he had triggered the slide, but I found that hard to believe. We climbed for quite some while. Calvin and Chuck stayed close together, and I took Bob another route. I think I did not really want to be near Chuck at the time. I was knocked off my mental balance by the event. I climbed with anger pulsing through my hands. I had to work to keep my emotions in check so that I would not cause an accident. I focused on encouraging Bob to get my mind off the incident. He was doing a good job of working his way up the rocks, but he was visibly impacted by the event. The fear that he worked so hard to hide earlier was now openly manifested. A wonderful day at altitude was tainted. I assured myself that injury like this is a part of the sport, and I prayed that the injured woman would be encouraged. I led Bob away from the more frequently trod route onto more solid rock. There was more exposure to a fall where we were, but little risk of getting hit by a falling projectile. I hoped that this would reassure Bob, but simply moving from one danger to another did not seem to help. I felt safer, and I tried to convince Bob that this was a better route. I don't think he agreed with me, but we continued to climb. We were nearing the top, but the route that I had chosen required that we walk a ledge about two feet wide with several hundred feet of sheer drop awaiting the misplaced step. Bob started to negotiate this highly exposed traverse, but then he froze and began to shake. It was all too much for him. He wanted to go back, but back was no safer. 
We had reached that point of mental exhaustion when fear of what might happen prevents one from moving ahead or back. Staying paralyzed in this spot was no safer than taking the next step, but rational thought is fleeting to one locked in such fear. I've known this fear too, but never on the rocks. This is the same fear that keeps a teenager locked into a damaging relationship with another. It's this fear that keeps adults slaving in dead-end jobs for years rather than making the career change that may bring joy and fulfillment. This is the same fear that keeps many out of college. What is it about human nature that we will endure uncomfortable or even dangerous situations for years rather than taking the first simple steps to deliver ourselves? Staying put right there on the edge of the cliff seems somehow safe. At least we are there. Perhaps it seems better to some to exist in a panic than to take a risk that could have adverse results. But staying put is not the answer. It rarely provides safety, joy, or fulfillment. There are times that moving on means changing habits and dealing with the difficult subjects. Some risk is involved in change, but there is a greater risk and effect if we do not change. One of the biological requirements to determine if something is living or not is metabolism. In other words, something has to grow or it's not alive. There's a spiritual parallel. We have to grow spiritually, intellectually, relationally, and even emotionally for our spirits to be truly alive. Staying locked in place by fear is never the right option. In this panic-induced state, our spirit suffers. Life becomes a drudgery, and we face a fate worse than the dangers involved with moving ahead on. Sometimes moving ahead means buckling down and working through challenging situations with a spouse or perhaps a career, but working through the tough aspects of life is forward movement, where abandoning the battle is yielding to the panic. This is one of the threats of our day. Quitting is cheap, and happiness is on a pedestal. We all have rough spots in our personalities that need to be ironed out. If we abandon the effort of the relationship, then we're submitting to the character flaw and will not grow. Rather, we're doomed to repeat unsavory experiences in the future. We might think we're moving on, but we're literally trapped by our fear of addressing the really important matters. Abandoning the battle is not forward movement. Deserters are not heroes. When we desert our own souls, we are most pitiful. Bob wanted to go back down. Down was familiar. He had been there before. Still, down was not safer and going down would lead us away from the joy at the top of the mountain. I traversed behind Bob and scouted ahead. There really was a reasonable route up through this traverse, and it would lead us nearly to the top. Bob was facing the mountain, attempting to give it a white-knuckled bear hug. I stood in the traverse. Bob, look, it's safe. The rock is wide enough, barely, and solid. If we move ahead, it gets better. Bob was still not convinced. Even if his brain understood, his body was locked in place. I was beginning to feel the release of my anger from the incident Chuck caused, and the exposure was providing the stress release I needed. We had to move on, so I did something truly stupid. I worked my way between Bob and the drop-off. This placed me in the precarious position of standing with my heels hovering over a sheer drop of hundreds of feet. From this position, I could not reach the rocks with my hands, but was forced to balance like a diver about to do a backflip off the highboard. However, from this position, I could place my hand on Bob's back, and I stood between him and the exposure. If he had shifted back only a little, 
I would have been forced to jump off the cliff in hopes of grabbing the lip of the precipice on my way down. Adrenaline was coursing through my veins by this time. I knew that I was taking a huge risk, but I also had faith that Bob would respond and shift on through the traverse without stepping closer to the edge. Bob, I've got you, I said, not sure what that really meant in our current situation. Just turn loose with your right hand and shift your feet to the left. We're almost there. You won't fall. You're safe now. Bob did feel safer. He did not turn around to see my heels off the rock and my legs starting to tremble. He simply followed instructions, one difficult inch at a time. Soon we had cleared the traverse, and only a steep but solid couloir stood between us and the top of North Maroon. I don't know why I stood on the edge of the cliff. I wanted to see Bob encouraged. I wanted him to conquer his fears and to feel the joy of having overcome. I wanted to see Bob on the summit. Bob needed a summit experience in his life. Still, why did I stand on the edge of the precipice? Had he simply shifted his weight the wrong direction, I would not be sitting here and writing this account. I acted as a full axe. I knew my plight, but somehow I felt safe on that cliff. One might suggest that I stood in the gap for a friend, but honestly, I had other options. Taking that degree of risk was nothing but foolish, and perhaps even selfish. I wanted Bob to succeed, but was it possible that I was willing to take this risk so I could succeed at motivating Bob? When we cleared the traverse, Bob reflected a long list of tangled emotions. He was shaken. The simple climb up the couloir looked ominous to him. He was angry, fearful, relieved, but still feeling stuck. I had to continue to support his back and show him handholds and footholds. He was fighting an inner battle that few ever fight in this life, and he was winning. One movement at a time was not only bringing him closer to the top, but also building in him courage. His self-contempt was changing. Each step made him braver than before, and each time he pulled himself higher, he was moved higher in his spirit as well. Soon he was climbing more on his own again. I felt overjoyed at witnessing this growth in Bob's psyche. Still, I was no hero. I had helped Bob through a really tough spot in his climb, but I had risked my life unnecessarily. Perhaps I took this risk to prove that I was not the bad guy who caused the rock slide. I wanted to prove that I was not a careless and thoughtless climber, that I was the one who helped people. Hogwash. I proved that I had the capacity to be careless and foolish. What if I had fallen? Bob would have had to have lived life with that memory. He would likely have blamed himself for my demise. What's more, he would have been stuck on that traverse with even greater panic than before. He might have fallen too, simply from the shock of seeing me fall. Rarely do the mountains kill people. People die from lack of knowledge and from poor decisions made in haste. My poor decision worked out all right. Maybe my guardian angel had his hand on my back while my hand was on Bob's. <laughs> I suspect that as he watched my stupidity, he must have shaken his head. I got the message. Don't be stupid. A few minutes more and we were at the top. I gave Bob a smile and a hug. Look what you did, Bob. Look down there. Bob looked back in disbelief, but I could see the confidence rising in his heart. He broke into a huge smile and could not fully contain his laughter. He was on top of one of Colorado's most dangerous 14ers. He had made the climb. We celebrated together, whooping and hollering like the fool I had proven myself to be. The summit was fairly small. We sat down to wait for Calvin and Chuck to arrive. 
Their route was challenging as well, with more loose rock, but soon they too celebrated. The view of Snowmass Wilderness and the Elk Range was astounding. What a day it had been. What a glorious opportunity to sit on the top of this peak in the sun and take in the awesome beauty of the creation. We shook hands all around and congratulated ourselves. Others had arrived on the summit, and Calvin had one of them take a picture of our motley crew. Bob's striped bike helmet sat cattywampus on his head. Calvin's red construction helmet still looked out of place. My arms were covered with blood from the lady who had taken the rock strike. Chuck looked the part with his wild hair and long beard. We all grinned from ear to ear. There really was a hero on the mountain that day, but not in the picture. The hero popped her bloody head over the lip of the summit a few minutes later, with a bandana holding her ear in place and a smile as big as our own silly grins, she and her husband celebrated with us. She completed the climb when most would have given up. I think she learned much about herself on this climb. We all did. That is the reason that we climb the mountains of life, to grow in our spirits. Calvin stayed in touch with the husband and the wife for some time afterward. The wife was taken to the emergency room by her husband when they got off the mountain. It required scores of stitches, internal and external, to reattach the top of her ear, but she was otherwise unscathed. Talking to Calvin weeks later revealed that everyone still did think that I was the one who triggered the rock slide. I finally told Calvin what had really happened. Chuck had returned to his home out of state, and I did not feel that I was affixing blame at that point as much as setting the record straight. Eventually, Calvin climbed the last 14er on the list. He has all 54 mountains to his credit now, and has climbed many of them several times. We had a party for him to celebrate the accomplishment. Not too long after this, he moved to Houston to pastor a church there. I've often wondered how the mountain man fares in South Texas. Adventure. Is that the reason we climb? For me, it is that, but also much more. Climbing provides an intimacy with the mountains that cannot be approached from a lookout beside the highway. It is an extremely satisfying experience for the person who likes to work hard to gain meaningful rewards. What about camaraderie? Certainly the friendships that develop on the steeps are valuable. But I think that maybe a lot of us climb also for perspective. You know, the mountains make us feel closer to the Almighty. We're humbled by their power and their size. I know that some climb for pride's sake. They really must do a mountain so that they can add it to their list. These are the people who bag peaks as personal trophies, which they love to display. To be honest, most climbers climb for all of these reasons. It's interesting to introduce someone to climbing. On their first peak, they are enemies with the mountain. They did not expect it to really hurt as much as it does to struggle at altitude. They knew there would be sore legs and perhaps blisters, but one really cannot predict the mental battle that is standard to climbing. On our first peak, we found ourselves asking why we're doing it. Then we begin to wonder if we'll ever attempt another. At the top, it's common for one to express the sentiments of, well, now that I've done this, I don't have to do that again. I know what this is about. However, something wonderful begins to happen in their souls after a couple of days off of the mountain. The pain's forgotten, and the daily grind of life stands in stark contrast to the freedom one feels on a mountain. Sitting in a closed office makes one long for the open air and sunshine of the high alpine wilderness. The one who says that he or she will never climb another peak soon may find himself or herself on another climb several weeks later. It's addictive. 
It's fabulously addictive to climb large mountains. There's also a wonderful bond that develops between people who climb the mountains together. Anytime individuals share a challenging and memorable experience, there sprouts a link between their souls. I have climbed about as many peaks with Dan as I have with Calvin, and Brian has been there on several of the outings. Melanie, Lauren, Jeff, Stephen, Alan, Mark, Bill, Christy, Leon, Kurt. The list is a long one. In some ways, we are a family. Families are together during the best and the worst of times. Members of a family are also exposed to each other when their guard is down, and a sense of grace pervades. Family knows what you look like first thing in the morning, with your hair standing on end, morning breath, and droopy eyes. My family knows how I handle stress. They know my sins and my triumphs. Likewise, friends we summit with are witnesses to extremes of fatigue, emotion, fear, excitement, and joy. With every climb, we reveal ourselves to our climbing partners. We reveal how many donuts we've consumed over the last year. We reveal the effectiveness of our exercise habits. We reveal how our particular genetics make us physically and emotionally stronger or weaker. We reveal to our climbing buddies how we manage fear and pain. We reveal how we overcome hardship. We even reveal our spirits. We may pretend not to make comparisons, but we do. Dan and Leon, for instance, have the best dexterity of anyone with which I climb. Dan claims that I'm the least fearful of exposure to a fall. Bill and Alan are safe climbers who just don't give up. Lauren is the wise, constant tortoise from Aesop's fable, whose steady pace leaves many asleep in the shade. There's a unique closeness between climbers that seems to be directly proportional to the number of climbs shared. I love my climbing friends. I dream of a time in this life in which we could all meet somewhere in the wilderness and sleep in tents for weeks. We would bathe in icy streams, laugh around campfires, and eat strange meals composed of scraps of food that we carried in. During the days, we would climb peaks that tower around our campsite. It would be the ultimate reunion, but not one so much of remembering as of enjoying the present among great people. It would be a time of forgetting the busy routines of our world. Politics, wars, taxes, investments, jobs, and traffic jams would all be forgotten as we breathed in perfect air and exhaled our stresses. We would swap tales of past follies, and we would laugh until our cheeks ached. When we grew tired, we would sleep. When we grew restless, we would climb. We would learn from each other and share what we knew. We would worship together there. We would love. Thanks for listening to this latest segment of 8240. We're going to end with that for now. Next week, we're going to move on to Ali France. He is going to be reading from his new book, The Trail of the Mountain Folk, where he details his solo journey along the mountainous spine of Asia from Hong Kong to Istanbul. Ali was on episode 330, so if you want to hear that, go back and find that one. It was a great story. Until the next episode, get out and have some fun. Music